welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 219. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week again, we're sponsored by J.R. Hamantation's new anthology, You Shall Never Know Security, 13 stories that the editor of Harrow Press described as raw, startling, and dark. J.R.'s work, he says, isn't comfortable fiction. It's thought-provoking fiction wrapped around a grimly philosophical edge. To give you a little sample of the anthology, we're going to run a little abridged version of one story here on the show, a story called A Parasite Inside Your Brain. In the middle, you'll hear a brief author's note from J.R. about the story and the writing of it. I think you'll enjoy. A Parasite Inside Your Brain by J.R. Hamantation One night, as Caitlin Boston and her family slept, an arachnid descended onto her bed and hopped inside her ear. This was an arachnid that you'd describe as creepy. Its eight legs canvassed around its body like fluid orbits around a planet, a black, living, atomic symbol. Caitlin never felt a thing, and she continued to never feel a thing as the arachnid made a little home for itself somewhere inside her head. It buried in, straight down like a socket screw, just a nub visible and its eight flattened legs spread out like a fan. She went on about her days as a high school junior. She hung out with her friends, did her homework, drank a little here and there, but never too much. She was as bored as ever, anxious about graduating, always desperate to make her parents proud, and angsty as ever, just, well, because. But unbeknownst to her, the day the arachnid made its home was a turning point for her. As the weeks passed, she noticed that her mood was lifting. Well. Maybe that wasn't quite right. Rather, the unnameable depression that dogged her, that had wrapped itself around her like a straitjacket, was becoming easier to bear. She didn't feel inexplicably sluggish each morning. She didn't grouse over the empty meaninglessness of her days. Instead, she rather enjoyed her lack of responsibility and appreciated this all-too-fleeting free time where all that was important was going to school, boys, some relaxed crocheting, and the low-level drama of her friends' trials and travails. Life was not a checklist of burdens to be endured, or a trial run where the prize was the approval of others, but rather a brief opportunity for joy. She felt so good, in fact, that she planned on convincing her parents to cancel her upcoming physical exam. She'd been struggling with a low-level depression ever since she started high school. Maybe it was anemia, someone had suggested. To her family, of course, not to her. Surely it had to be depression combined with something else, because successful, college-bound girls from good families can't be unhappy for no reason. And Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac, the whole litany of approved instacures, none of them had been any help. So, even though she kept telling her parents that she was feeling much better, that she had somehow undergone some beneficial change of mood, well, her parents would hear none of it. So off to the doctor she went. The arachnid, now her arachnid, continued to go about its business, feeding on whatever it fed on, unwittingly secreting whatever it secreted. 
It secreted whatever it was that had served its ancestors so well, the same cocktail of chemicals that kept its host exploring nothing other than interests and passions. Fucking goddamn Cigna, Dr. Coleman complained to his secretary before Caitlin Boston's 520 appointment. Nickel and diming me on everything. I put the Jackson claim in for 400. I got 120. Can you believe that? Fucking ridiculous. Lucky for him, the Bostons were a gold mine. Caitlin's solicitous parents assumed the lead and rattled off their daughter's lists of complaints for her, as if muteness was one of her afflictions. Unexplainable depression that antidepressants couldn't fix. Malaise. Terrible anxiety. The list of possible tests and treatments unfurled like a Dead Sea scroll. Caitlin briefly piped up. Dr. Coleman had momentarily forgotten she was there and told him that, actually, she'd been feeling much better. But of course, in his estimation, it'd be better to run as many tests as possible in order to exclude all the alternatives. I'll be happy to do everything I can, he said, comforting her exasperated parents. He meant it. The next few days saw Caitlin undergoing a battery of tests, a veritable alphabet soup of MRIs, EKGs, LOLs, etc. Dr. Coleman was happy with the reimbursement he received, both from insurance and from the medical references he provided Caitlin and her family. He perfunctorily half-eyed all the results until, wait, what? His finessing of the insurance system was a survival strategy, sure, but he was still a doctor, goddammit. He couldn't let an anomaly like this slide. This thing near her skull. What in God's name is that? J.R. calling from Queens. Thought I got my book. I wouldn't describe the stories as horror stories. They're not meant to scare people or hold people in suspense, but they're reflective of my dark philosophical outlook on life. I think, you know, dark fiction is most resonant when the characters are fleshed out to a degree, um, where they have competing motivations, where there's some actual drama there. I'm not, none of these stories are really interested in like spooking people or having people at the edge of their seat with suspense or anything like that. I'm inspired a lot by people like Ted Klein or Dennis Etcherson who have kind of like a creepy, atom-breeding intimations of horror, um, where the horror is more like on the periphery. The theme of the story is the stories are reflected in the title. You shall never know security. I mean, you know, things just don't get better. Things just don't get better. Let me be clear. This x-ray your neurologist took, I'm not sure why or how he captured this exactly, but either way there is a definite irregularity. Caitlin's mother was frightfully rigid. Her father was quiet, square-jawed, and stoic rock. Caitlin, have you noticed anything different recently? Any new pains? Any changes in mood? Anything? No new pains. Honestly, everything's been fine. Better than fine, actually. I was actually thinking how I don't remember the last time I've felt any better. Well, okay, he feigned. Well, I don't know how to say this, but you may have some sort of, um, parasite inside your head. If you see on this x-ray, this tiny dot, if it's expanded, you can make out in this 
spiral something that looks like an insect of some kind. As if it were any consolation, he told her not to worry, that they had no idea what effect it may be having, so she shouldn't get so worked up yet. Either way, a specialist would take care of it within the week, assuming her insurance would cover it, of course. She had a host of questions, but she got the distinct feeling that her concerns were considered by all to be a temporary obstacle to a foregone conclusion, just an impasse to get through. Was the surgery safe since it was so close to the brain? Maybe it was like a bullet where sometimes they just leave it in if the risks outweigh the possible benefit. You can't live with another organism inside you, Dr. Coleman declared as the bacteria in his gut digested the Greek yogurt he'd eaten for breakfast and the demodex mites in his eyelashes continued to feast unperturbed on his skin cells. For the next week or so, while her parents arranged for her surgery and fielded the concerned calls from friends and family, Caitlin stayed in her room and kept to herself. Everyone was calling her brave, which was odd since she knew that she had no choice in the matter. She was as brave as a prisoner wheeled out to the gallows. Some time before the surgery, the arachnids' eggs hatched. The larvae painlessly made their way out her ear and out into the world, their shells harmlessly dissolved into her bloodstream. If her brain was being monitored, it may have been possible to pinpoint the exact moment the eggs hatched, probably right at the time her brain activity spiked and her lovely dreams became even lovelier, more evocative, something about warmth and tenderness and comfort. Her parents drove her to the surgeon. She sat in the back in silence, her bleeding iPhone in her pocket shimmied and shook with each encouraging message her friend sent. Her parasite was removed. The amazing ecosystem in her body continued undisturbed. But her amazing feeling didn't last. Immediately after she recovered from her surgery, she felt on edge. Disaster was always looming. A cork had been unplugged and all her happiness had leaked out. Life was no longer a brief opportunity for joy and discovery. No, once again, life meant a world where nothing was certain, where today's joy was an ephemeral reprieve, a gasp of air obtained while floundering adrift across a sea of unnameable dread. No one could explain her deteriorating mood. Her mother was instead occupied by a different problem. Following Caitlin's surgery, Caitlin's left eye winced and watered without warning. Caitlin didn't notice much, although when she was told about it, she suspected that, of course, everyone else must have noticed. She suspected that people weren't as nice to her as they had used to be, as if her very minor involuntary flinching was like finding a curly hair in an otherwise appetizing meal. She thought this feeling would one day go away. It never did. It lasted until her life abruptly snuffed out. But at least her parasite had been removed. Ah, progress. There you have it. Go check out either the print or Kindle version at Amazon.com. Look for You Shall Never Know Security by J.R. Hamantation, or find a link in our show notes. Ah, progress indeed. The word symbiosis literally means together life and refers to organisms that live in close approximation that often cannot live without the other. 
Fans of the Drabblecast know that we're suckers around here for complicated, gross parasites, but there's all sorts of neat relationships on the spectrum of symbiosis. You might have noticed a subtle, unofficial theme to this past month's stories, involving end-time scenarios. We've been bringing you stories of the odd apocalypse, having them creep up around you, uncertain, unannounced, as days of reckoning are wont to do. What's always been interesting to me, though, in end times fiction isn't how the characters end their lives, it's how they spend their lives. It's how they adapt and try to make do, how the perspectives change, how the together life adjusts as things fall apart. Maybe it's learning to cope with commensalist relationships where the zombie corpses following you around neither help nor hurt you. Maybe it's a stark look at the mostly parasitoid relationship between ourselves and our orange of a planet. And then there's mutualism, situations of species synergy where one plus one equals three and nobody loses, when two words rhyme and take on new meanings, greater meanings, in the couplet of a poem. Leave the arachnid alone, Doc. It comes in peace. It oozes peace amidst the chaos, danger, and uncertainty around us. It reminds us how very special are we for just a moment to be part of life's eternal rhyme. How very special are we? And that brings us to this week's feature story, The Big Splash by George R. Galushak. Mr. Galushak is a speculative fiction writer and librarian living in northern New Jersey. For more about him and his work, see his blog at encephalo-ray.blogspot.com. So without further ado, we bring you The Big Splash by George R. Galushak. And Maybe Charlie could help. I carried my dog to the car and laid him on a blanket. His tail thumped on the front seat. He still loved his car trips, even though he couldn't see anymore. Then I drove down the hill to the big splash, parked the car on the shoulder of the road, took off my shoes, and walked onto the beach. A wasp landed on the back of my hand, midnight blue with a needle stinger. It perched there a moment, wings quivering like a hummingbird's, and then flew off. I went back to the car to get my dog, wrapped him up in a blanket, and carried him to the beach. I passed the sign that read, Warning, Shark Zone. The sun was setting, lighting up the tops of the condos sticking out of the water. They'd been swallowed up by the swollen ocean when it spilled over, like everything else. The skyscrapers, the cars, the fast food joints, the schools and supermarkets and liquor stores. A colony of wild parrots nested in one of the condos, big green squawking monsters that made a ruckus. Charlie sat on a lawn chair, watching the sunset. He looked human, sort of, but there were differences, the biggest being the third eye above the bridge of his nose. When Charlie got stoned, his corneas turned bright pink and the third eye rolled up into his head. Hey, Mark. Charlie raised a hand. He looked at the bundle in my arms. Who's this? This is Roger, my cocker spaniel, I said. He's a good boy. What's wrong with them? Charlie asked. He held out his hand, and Roger sniffed it. He's old, I said. He can't see anymore, can hardly walk. Ah, oh, poor guy, Charlie scratched Roger's ears. 
I want to ask a favor, I said. Maybe it's stupid. Hit me. I thought you might be able to help him. I tried to keep the tremble out of my voice. Maybe reverse the aging process. <laughs> what makes you think I could do that? Charlie asked. Well, you're an alien and all, and you do that stuff with the wasps and the crabs. They're simple organisms, don't have backbones. Nothing I can do for Roger, I'm afraid. When I didn't answer, Charlie said, Sorry about that. Uh, that's okay. I swallowed, but the lump in my throat didn't go down. That's it then. I guess I'd better go. Where are you going? To the vet, I said. I'm putting him to sleep. What does that mean? They give him an injection. He goes to sleep. He, he doesn't wake up. Stay a while, Charlie said. I think he likes it here. It was true. Roger's head was up. He was sniffing the ocean air. All right. I sat on the lawn chair, put Roger on my lap, stroked his head, felt his bones under my fingers, delicate as a bird's feathers. Charlie lived next to the ocean, the big splash, as he called it, made a shelter out of pieces of junk the tides and his crabs brought in. He slept in a hut made of tire rims, pieces of driftwood, sheet metal, bottle tops, and seashells, all glued together and painted fluorescent red-yellow-green. It stood out. Some people said you could see Charlie's hut from outer space. We sat for a while, watched the sunset. A white van pulled up, and three people got out, two girls and a guy. The guy wore jams, the girls bikinis. I heard something zip past my ear, saw the wasp land on Charlie's upturned palm. Nah, it's okay, Charlie said. They look harmless. The wasp flew back to its nest, a beach ball-sized gray lump hanging next to the garden, which was just a bunch of bright green leaves sprouting from the dunes. Charlie made Space Lord spliff by drying the leaves in the sun. Hey man, the guy walked up. He carried a surfboard under his arm. Tide's right, mind if we surf here? Yeah, be my guest, Charlie said. Watch out though, the water's full of sharks. People threw their trash into the big splash, and the half-eaten food attracted sharks. The seas were mostly empty now, so they came close to shore. I'd seen a shark leap from the water and take a parrot sunning itself atop a half-submerged stop sign. Yeah? The surfer scratched his head. What kind of sharks? Tigers. No great whites? He sounded disappointed. The girls laughed. Oh, tiger sharks are plenty ornery, Charlie said. We've had a half dozen attacks this year. Oh yeah? How many died? Oh, the ambulance came and picked them up, so I don't know. Cool. The surfer stood up. Let's go. He ran to the water and the girls followed. Ah, oh, humans, you never change, Charlie laughed. So what's going on, man? Give me the mark report. Oh, nothing much, I said. I'm graduating in a few weeks. I'll be going to school out of state. Yeah? Charlie pulled a joint from the pocket of his baggy shorts and lit up. The smell of Space Lord's spliff filled the air. You gonna have a party? Go to the prom? Uh, yeah, probably. Did you have proms where you came from? Uh, I came from right there. Charlie pointed at a dull orange star gleaming in the muddy sky. And no, we didn't have proms. I watched the surfers. 
The guy caught a wave, got to his feet, fell on his ass. The girls clapped and whooped. I noticed that the girls didn't go near the water. How long have you been here, Charlie? I landed in the big splash 50 years ago, he said, right before the waters rose. Can you go back? <laughs> My planet exploded, so now. There was a cry from the surf. Oh, that didn't take long. Charlie shook his head. You know the drill, Mark. I did. I used my buzz to call emergency services. The girls were dragging the surfer to shore. Charlie ran to the water's edge and helped them. They laid him on the sand. His left foot was gone. I saw blood pumping, shreds of ragged skin, knob of bone. Charlie made a tourniquet with a beach towel and tied it to the calf. Did it get my leg? The surfer reached out and ran his hands over his hairy thigh. No, no, just the foot, Charlie said. I didn't see a thing. The surfer's face was white, like cottage cheese. I was just cruising along and it bit me. I gave it a kick in the nose with my other foot. Hey, good for you, Charlie said. He put a hand on the surfer's shoulder. Lie back and try to relax. I'll be goddamned, the surfer said. His wild hair was plastered on the sand. His eyes opened and closed. He was panting. I, I can't believe it. Hey, I told you. Charlie said. There's signs all over the beach telling you. you. You think they'll be able to reattach the foot? Well, your foot's in a shark's belly, Charlie said. Shit. The surfer closed his eyes. Tears rolled down his cheeks. Oh, shit. Afterwards, the ambulance faded into the distance. One of the girls rode with the surfer, the other stuck around. She was pretty, redhead in a black bikini, a yin-yang tattoo on her right hip. I told him it was a bad idea, she said. I'm Liz, by the way. Nice to meet you. I was back on the lawn chair, Roger on my lap. My name's Mark. Can I get some Space Lord Spliff? She asked. Yeah, sure, Charlie said. He handed her a joint. When she held out a $10 bill, he shook his head. On the house. Thanks. Liz stroked my dog's gray muzzle. You didn't introduce me to this guy. His name's Roger, Charlie said. He's Mark's friend, and he's... he's dying. I'm sorry, Liz said. She touched my arm. My skin stirred. Do you want to take a walk? Sure. I stood up. When Charlie held out his arms, I put Roger on his lap. We strolled along the beach. All around us, midnight blue crabs scuttled out of the surf, lugging hubcaps, bundles of copper wire, glass bottles. Charlie sold it to the junk dealers. We stopped walking. I took my buzz out of my pocket, flicked it to the open web, and sent her the file containing my recreational sex partners for the last year. She did the same for me. I didn't see anybody I knew on her list. My buzz beeped. Everything checked out. I put my cat to sleep last year, Liz said. She draped her towel over the sand. It was awful. Yeah. I pulled down my shorts, watched her unknot the strap of her bikini top. Sorry, I don't feel much like talking. That's okay, Liz said. She took my hand and drew me down to her. 
Afterward, she rolled up her towel and started getting dressed. I closed my eyes. When I opened them, she was gone. The used condom lay in the sand. A crab scuttled over, picked it up, and hustled towards the trash pit. When I got back, Charlie still sat on the lawn chair. Roger was sprawled on his legs, still, so still. Oh, my voice caught. Oh, no. He went peaceful, Charlie told me. Just closed his eyes and died on my lap. Why don't we bury him? Charlie said. I mean, I've got a shovel. I'll do it, I told him. And I did. I dug until my shoulders hurt. Then I took a break and started again. I kept at it until the hole was big enough. This is his favorite blanket. I wrapped Roger up and laid him in the grave and shoveled sand on top of it. Charlie got down on his hands and knees and helped. Nothing will get at him, will it? I asked after we finished. No, Charlie shook his head. You dug deep, Mark. I wiped at my face. I'm sorry to have bothered you. No bother, he told me. Let's sit. Now, I'd, I'd better be going. You sure you're okay? When I nodded, he put an arm around my shoulder. Hey, when will I see you again? We're having a beach party next weekend, I told him. Me and my friends. Soon we'd be gone, scattered by the tide, Andy studying in Europe, Mara excavating the ruins of San Francisco, Peggy working in her parents' coffee shop. Soon, but not yet. Good, Charlie smiled. I like your little group, man, like your karma. You mind if I bring something next time? I asked. Flowers or a marker? Yeah, that's fine. Charlie gave my shoulder a final pat. When I got to my car, I looked at my buzz. Liz had sent me her number. I kept it. I twisted the key and the car hummed to life, but I didn't drive away. I sat there, listening to the surf hit the beach, and it sounded like the world's bones, creaking as they turned, twisting, grinding. Thinking of your life, Wilbur, nothing can harm you now. The autumn days grow short and cold. It's Christmas time again. Then snows of winter slowly melt. The days grow short and then he turns the season around and so she changes her gown mother earth and father time how very special are we for just a moment 
to be part of life's eternal rhyme. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Planets explode, dogs get old, and friends and loved ones eventually move on. Not much we can do about it, but we're still better off together while we can be. So might as well relax, pull up a lawn chair, and watch the sharks and jackasses play out there in the water. If you enjoyed this week's story, remember you can help us out in a big way by donating to the show. Your support pays authors for their work, helps us with production costs, and all sorts of other stuff. Go to Drabblecast.org and click on any of our support options. We really appreciate it. All right, time for this week's 100-character story winner. First-time winner, J.M. Here it is. Please, oh please, make the barking stop. I've tried everything, playing with it, feeding it, petting it, drowning it. Ha <laughs> ha, aww. Drabblecast disclaimer, don't get me wrong, obviously we love us some dogs here on the Drabblecast, but we also love us some good biting and compact fiction. 100 characters, not counting spaces, doesn't get much more compact than that. Try writing one yourself and post in our discussion forums off Drabblecast.org in the TwitFix section. You might show up on next week's show. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast for the weekly winners early and for other nuggets of alleged entertainment. Alright folks, that's our show. Remember, it's brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan's originally from Hammond, Indiana. He currently brings home the bacon as a superintendent slash handyman for a property management company in Guelph, Ontario. When he's not doing that, his online music creation and art battle each other for dominance. He has a missus and two cats, and two out of three of them are crazy. You can find more of his art at graymatterarts.com or his music at compause.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding the Demodex mites feasting in your eyelashes that I like your little group, man. Mm-hmm.